Amen. Well, as you are finding your way back to your seats, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let's pray together. Father, once again, we're grateful that we can now turn to you and hear from you in your word. We're grateful, Father, that you have not left us alone in this world to, to wonder what life is about or to wander our own way, Lord, but that you have revealed yourself to us in this, the written word, your scriptures. And we thank you, Lord, that you have ultimately revealed yourself to us in that word who became flesh, Christ Jesus. And so, God, we ask that as we have a few moments to reflect on these words, that we would ultimately see Jesus high and lifted up. And we pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Again, Philippians chapter 2. We're looking this morning at verses 12 through 18 as we, con- as we continue our journey through Paul's letter. Again, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. It's also printed for you on your bulletin on page 7, and it says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I may be poured out, sorry, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. We mentioned last Sunday Uh, that in chapter 2 of this letter to the Philippians here, uh, Paul begins to get kind of parental with his audience. That if you recall, Paul is their spiritual father in the faith, and yet he is prevented from being physically present with them because of his imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. And so as this sort of parental figure, this spiritually parental figure uh, in their lives, he writes to them, and he first rejoices, as we saw, over their faith, over their grip and their grasp on the gospel, but then he gave them a report about his own condition, a report about his situation uh, as he was detained, as he was unable to come and visit them as quickly as he would have liked. But then, of course, he began then to instruct them. Because he can't get to them physically, he begins to then send instructions and exhortations to them. And we saw at the end of chapter 1 and beginning into, into chapter 2, Paul began to instruct the Philippians on how their saving faith, the saving faith that he was so glad they possessed, over time begins to transform us and to evidence itself as sanctifying faith. A faith that changes us, a faith that rewires us, a a faith that ultimately reorders our priorities and begins to evidence itself in countercultural living 
and in countercultural values. And the primary countercultural value that Paul encouraged them towards last week in the beginning of chapter two was the value or the or the you know the distinction of humility. Of humility. And if you look back in the beginning of chapter two, Paul will label it and will categorize it many different ways. He talks in in verse 2 of being unified in mind here in the church. In verse 3, he talked about refraining from having selfish ambition or conceit. But in, there's that word, humility, we count others more significant than ourselves. In verse 4, he talked about looking to the interest of others before we look to our own. All of these things, though, all of these ways of saying it are ultimately categorized under that larger banner of humility. Humility. And it doesn't take a keen eye uh, to realize that in today's world, that call to humility is a radically countercultural one, is it not? Of course. Of course. That we can look around and realize that everyone, including ourselves, that, that we're tempted, everyone all around us, that we're all busy building our personal kingdoms, that we're all encouraged even by the world we live in to, to self-promotion, to self-aggrandizement, building our kingdoms before our very eyes, that if we were to, you know, um, if we were to think about it, you know, the, the holy trinity, if you will, of our world would be what? Me, myself, and I, right? That's the world we live in. And so this call to be humble, this call to have the humility that we see here as Paul articulates it in the beginning, again, of, of chapter 2, is incredibly radical, incredibly countercultural. And it's one of our primary evangelistic tools as Christians. It's one of our primary apologetics as Christians to embody the things that we see here. But Paul, of course, grounds all of these things, again, beginning of chapter two, he grounded the call for humility ultimately in Christ himself. And we, we notice that, that the motivation, that the, the, the impetus towards this countercultural humility is found in the example that Christ himself gave to us. And the reason that that motivates us and encourages us is because anyone that we are called to serve or anyone that we are called to defer to, anyone that we are called to lay our lives down and sacrifice towards, that the, the, the bridge that we're called to, you know, to create there will always pale in comparison to the bridge that Christ himself uh, built when coming to us. Isn't that true? That again, when Christ humbles himself, and we see it in chapter 2, he's humbling himself as deity in heaven coming down to humanity on earth. And so anything that we're called to in deference to each other or in service to our world will always pale in comparison. That we never have to condescend or stoop as low as Christ did for us. And so again, that motivates us then, doesn't it? It fuels our service. It fuels our compassion and humility because it's still fractionary compared to what Christ has done for us. And so Paul, again, he brings all of this out for us in that first half of, of chapter 2. But here, in, in, beginning in verse 12, Paul will continue. And he says, if you notice in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved Again, you hear this parental, you know, paternal 
familial, affectionate language on the part of Paul. Therefore, my beloved, my children, my precious ones, it's not just humility that we're called to, it's this overarching obedience that he will now unpack for us in the rest of chapter 2. But here in these verses, if you noticed, the obedience that we're called to First is a personal obedience. Look again in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's calling them and he's calling us to a personal obedience. If you notice, you know, Paul is, is basically saying, you evidenced great faith in Christ as Savior when I was with you. When I was with you, personally, you evidenced great obedience to his lordship. But now that I'm gone, if I never come back to you, I hope to see that that obedience was genuine and it's become personal. Because Paul will begin to reflect in the verses that follow on his potential martyrdom. And as he considers the fact that he may never actually see them again, he may never actually visit them in person again, he basically is saying, I hope the confession that you made wasn't just a confession out of context or convenience or perhaps even peer pressure when I was with you, but it has become a personal and genuine confession. That you didn't just accept Christ and, and confess his name and confess his lordship because your parents did, or because your, your friends did, or because you felt the pressure when you know, I, Paul the Apostle, was in your midst, but that the confession you made is genuine and it's a personal one. And that it's now taking root in your lives even in my absence. And again, I think that's a, that's a compelling reminder to all of us today. That again, our faith is always rooted somewhere that perhaps you grew up in this church and you came to faith in this church or you came to faith you know, under the, the, the tutelage of your parents. But ultimately, that faith has to become personal, right? That when we move out of our parents' house, when we move out of the church in which we grew up, when we are called to different seasons or chapters or, or pastures in our lives, that the confession we made remains personal and genuine and not just rooted in the context in which we came from, but it's actually taken root down into our hearts. That's what Paul here is calling them to, that we can't borrow a friend's faith or a parent's faith, that all of us are called to do business with God. All of us are called to have that personal relationship with Christ, that even in the absence of the original reason for why we came to faith, it remains. It remains, and it's blossoming, and it's growing, and it's evidencing itself as a maturing faith. That's what Paul is calling the Philippians here too, and he calls us too as well. But secondly, if you notice, the faith he calls them to is ultimately a God-fueled faith. A God-fueled obedience, and that's encouraging for us. If you look, as he continues, he says again, um, not only in my presence, verse 12, but much more in my absence, what are they called to do? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you, 
This is one of those verses that over you know, time has caused uh, great consternation for Christians. It touches on the debate between you know, faith and works. It touches on the debate over eternal security. How do we work out our salvation? How is it that we can be called to something as uh, intimidating as this notion of fear and trembling? And again, while all those questions and, and nuances are worth exploring on their own, what's often missed here is that this is a verse not ultimately designed to make us doubt. Did you realize that? That this verse here is not actually designed to make you doubt, but to marvel. To marvel. To marvel. Again, Paul here is calling the Philippians to a personal and obedient and active faith. But it's a faith and an obedience that is founded in the realization that God is always with us. That God was with the Philippians and he's also with us. And it's God who ultimately animates our faith if we simply defer to his lordship. If we simply turn the keys of our lives, if you will, over to him. In other words, you know, the, the fear and trembling that we're called to here isn't because we lack certainty in our faith, or lack certainty in what God has done, and so therefore now we're nervous, or we're anxious that we might not actually be you know, inside the family. Because if you notice, Paul doesn't follow up the call to fear and trembling with doubt. But he, call, he follows it up with this grateful, you know, this, this amazing assurance. The fear and trembling that we're called to, again, isn't one of doubt or anxiety, it's one of amazement. It's one of amazement that the God of the universe actually begins then to take an active part in the transformation of our lives. That we actually begin to see him now working in and through us. And what happens is that as we see God again, as we see the Savior, the Redeemer, now become the sanctifier and the changer and the transformer of our lives, we stand back and we're amazed. It's this holy and reverential awe, if you will, this holy fear and trembling that the God of all the universe actually now dwells within us, (laughs) that his Holy Spirit actually dwells now inside of us, and he begins to now work through us in the world. He begins to work through us in our personal lives, and we stand back in amazement as we see habits and addictions and chains and priorities of our past now fall to the ground. It's amazing. Our salvation becomes a source of fear and trembling, holy awe, as again God begins to work through us and his Holy Spirit begins to change us and transform us. And the image you should hold in your minds here again is actually an Old Testament one. It's an Old Testament image. Think of how Israel was called in the Old Testament to approach the holy God who traveled with them by a pillar of fire, right? in a cloud, and ultimately dwelled in their midst through the tabernacle where his glory could be housed, how was Israel supposed to respond to that God? In holy reverence, fear and trembling, awe that the God of the universe would actually dwell in their midst. It's a similar call the Christian is is being given here. 
that God now, Emmanuel, is with us in the truest sense of the word. And he doesn't just tabernacle with us in a tent. He doesn't tabernacle with us in a temple. But he actually resides within you. The Holy Spirit actually lives within you. He is with you every step of the way, every step of the journey. And we have this holy fear and trembling and awe when we realize that God is with us in our midst. And we see his alien righteousness, if you will. The righteousness that comes from the outside, from Christ. Now work within us and transform us and flow from us in new and fresh living. It's, it's amazing here, the, 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 the call here. It's a verse of actually great hope and encouragement, not doubt and anxiety. But then Paul continues into verse 14, and he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And again, uh, the image you can hold in your minds as you come to this verse is also an Old Testament one. For we see this very same thing with ancient Israel. God was with them. God was in their midst. God had called them and redeemed them and made, him, made them his own, things that he has done for us also. And yet too often the lives of the Israelites in the Old Testament weren't characterized by this holy fear and reverence, holy response to God's uh, gracious salvation. But what did we see them do instead? What was Israel often characterized by in the Old Testament? Grumbling, right? Grumbling and complaining and disputing uh, and second-guessing. God's plan. They grumbled over Moses and Aaron. Uh, they grumbled over God's provision for them in the desert, you know, the route he chose to take, uh, the food and drink that he uh, provided for them. They grumbled and they bickered and they fractured. And in doing so, what did they forfeit? What did they forfeit that we actually see Paul calling the Philippians to here? They forfeited that great privilege they had been given to be witnesses and to be lights to a watching world, to the nations around them. And again, if you fast forward to the New Testament, we as the church, we as the new Israel, um, are given the same kind of exhortation here, the same exhortation, that we are called to be lights, uh, we are called to be children of God, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, again, uh, among whom we shine, we're called to shine as lights in the world. But if we're too busy bickering with each other, again, whether that's here in the local church, whether it's you know, among other churches, Christians at large, the, Christ, the larger Christian community, if we're always bickering and infighting and disputing and nitpicking you know, each other, if we're always warring on the inside, what does it do? It forfeits our ability to shine on the outside, basically. All of our energy and our zeal is consumed by infighting instead of external shining and witnessing to a watching world. And again, that's a reminder for us. I mean, think about even what Israel did. My favorite example of that is think about when they complained about the manna, right? 
I mean, think about that for a second. That God is literally raining down food from heaven. What's that, what's that movie, uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs? Has anybody seen those, those like animated movies today? Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. There's like two or three of them now. I have young kids, you can tell, right? So I watch those movies. But, uh, you know, it's about some scientist who invents a machine that turns precipitation into like hamburgers and pizza. And it's pretty awesome, actually, right? But that's, that's a biblical story that's being hijacked, right? I mean, think about that in the Old Testament. God is literally raining down food from heaven and not just any kind of food, a one-of-a-kind, never-before-seen-or-after kind of food called manna, which, as you know, is actually the translation of the phrase, what is it? Isn't that hilarious? The Israelites had no idea how to even categorize it. They called it, what is it? You know, I'll have what is it and a side of what the heck is that, right? That's basically what they have, right? A manna. So God is raining down food from heaven daily, and it's wafer-like, we're told, and it's flaky, and it's sweet. You know, it reminds me of a Krispy Kreme donut, probably. But that's what's coming down from heaven. And what do the Israelites do? What does the, the people of old do? They go, hey, God, in, in, in addition to that bread, could we get a side of meat, right? Could we get some lunch meat? Is that too hard to ask for? Oh, what it was like to be back in Egypt, when we had, you know, the buffet lines and, the, and we had fruit and produce and meat. And, and again, we laugh at those stories, and we probably should, but we laugh anxiously, <laughs> right? Because we can be the same way. And I'm, again, I'm in the front of that line. I'm a complainer. I'm a doubter. I'm a disputer. And it's easy to be that. And again, Paul here says, but the more you do that, again, especially with each other, the more we nitpick, the more we grumble, again, all it does is compromise our ability to look outside of ourselves, personally, but also collectively as a church and as a watching world. And so again, just a, just a convicting reminder to us, and again, that was why it was our call to confession. It's just a convicting and practical reminder to us of where our hearts should be uh, in all ways. But then finally here, lastly, um, Paul, in, in verses 17 and 18, puts before them one final kind of Old Testament picture. And he says in verse 17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You see, what Paul's doing here is after exhorting them towards a personal and God-fueled faith, and after exhorting them towards this continually sanctified posture that should exclude grumbling and complaining. You can kind of hear Paul here have this moment of kind of sober-minded reflection on where he actually finds himself. And he's mindful that this imprisonment that he is undergoing could ultimately demand his life. That it could ultimately lead to his martyrdom. And yet, even in that moment, even in that sort of striking, um, sober-minded circumstance, Paul here sees an opportunity for praise, and he sees an opportunity for Christ to be exalted. And he wants the Philippians to take that same mindset into wherever God places them as well, whatever situation. And again, a convicting reminder to us that whatever lot in life 
God gives to us. It's ultimately a lot that we are called to lay on his altar in praise, to lay on his altar in devotion. That's why Paul here can, can say, even if I am to be poured out, I am glad and rejoice. Even if I am to be poured out and, and martyred for the sake of Christ, he says, that will only be another offering placed upon the offering of your faith that all together is a pleasing aroma and a pleasing sacrifice to God. And again, that's a reminder to us that whatever God calls us to, whatever he calls us to be, whatever lot in life that he gives to us, it's ultimately something that we're called to see as an opportunity to turn back to him in sacrifice and in service and in devotion. And we don't do that as an atonement for sin. We're not sacrificing for our sin. Thankfully, that was a once and for all sacrifice made by Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. But because we received that once and for all sacrifice, because God poured himself out for us in that incredible manner, we now can respond in similar fashion, that we too then can give our lives back to God in service, and in self-deference, and in ultimate glorification of his name, deference to his purposes. And again, like Paul says, and we do it but rejoicing, rejoicing, knowing that we are a part of the family of God, and knowing that whatever we do on his behalf is never in vain. We never run our work in vain, but we rejoice because God is with us every step of the way. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do thank you for the reminder this day through your word. We again thank you that your word is relevant to us even so many years after it was written. That the people and the places and the names look different today in our lives, but the circumstances don't. That we are still sinners who have been called out of darkness into light and yet still find ourselves in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation, still find ourselves trying to navigate what it looks like to follow you in a broken world. And so again, Lord, thank you for the reminder that we've been given through Philippians, that you are still the same God over it all, that you are still the same Savior over our lives, that you are still the same one who is with us every step of the way. So we thank you and we praise you for your beautiful and profound word to us in scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.